Today we begin our Easter series of messages, a new series called Cries from the Cross. And I will deal with each of the things that Jesus said from the cross. You know how many statements he made? Seven. But then I'll also on Easter deal with his words, just two sentences, two questions actually, to Mary Magdalene in the garden after his resurrection. Last words are very significant. You don't have much time, so you think carefully what you will say. You can Google and read many different things that people have said on their deathbeds, but they're, they're important. They reveal what's on the person's mind. And so we look at Jesus last evening with the disciples. It was Thursday night. He had the Passover meal, what we call his last supper, and the model for our Lord's Supper. He ate with his disciples. They left the upper room. They went down through the Valley of Kidron and into the Garden of Gethsemane, which to my surprise is actually at the base of the Mount of Olives, not at the peak. And in the garden, he was arrested. During the night, he was brought before Annas, who was the former high priest, and Caiaphas, the serving high priest, And then he was taken to the Sanhedrin, an assembly of religious leaders. And in all three cases, three separate trials, he was facing ecclesiastical or church religious charges of blasphemy or disrespect against God. Because he claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. So even though they were awaiting a Messiah, when this man showed up and said that he was the Son of God, they attacked. You can read John 18, Matthew 26. After being tried by these religious groups, he was then tried by government officials. And the charges were different. He was accused of inciting people to riot of encouraging them to stop paying taxes, and again, claiming to be king. So he appeared before Pilate, the Roman governor. And then Pilate sent him to Herod, the king of Judea. And Herod sent him back to Pilate, who condemned him to death by crucifixion on a cross under pressure from the Jewish people. So let's turn to Luke chapter 23. And I urge you over these next several weeks, spend some time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reading passages about Jesus' last days. Luke 23. Verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull or Calvary, the word Calvary comes actually from the Latin word Calvaria, which means cranium or or skull. They nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, And one on his left. Now imagine the state Jesus was in. 
He was weak from pain, from exhaustion, from blood loss, and from dehydration. Since his arrest the previous evening in the garden, he had slept little. He had been spit upon, slapped, and punched, Matthew 26. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his scalp. He was scourged with 39 lashes with a, using a whip, which had at the end of the strands bits of bone and metal that would sink into the flesh and tear the skin and, and the muscles, rip the muscles with each strike. 39 lashes were given because it was believed that 40 was fatal. And then he was nailed with spikes. We think of it through the wrist, but it was, I mean, through the palm of the hand, but more likely it was through the wrist. And his feet were nailed with one spike. They were stacked and then nailed. Or perhaps through the Achilles tendons. His dehydration would have been so severe that his tongue would likely have been swollen. His lips cracked. And yet he spoke. At verse 34. Father forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Jesus' first agonized cry from the cross. Was unlike what we would have been declaring. Wasn't it? Unfortunately, I'm afraid I would have been saying, I'm innocent of this. I'm innocent of this. He wasn't declaring his own innocence. He wasn't demanding justice for those who had put him there. He prayed for the pardon of the very people who were taking his life. 1 Peter 2, 23 Oh, 979. He never sinned nor deceived anyone on 20, in 22. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Are you like Christ? Do you forgive people who deliberately, even deceptively, injure you? It's interesting, isn't it, how we forgive when we, be- when we believe it's justified to forgive. If it was accidental or unintentional, we'll forgive. But when we, when we know it was diabolical and it was laid out step by step and it was deliberate, it was intentional, it was willful, we have a hard time forgiving, don't we? And yet these were the very people acting in that very way who Christ prayed for forgiveness for. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness included several things that I pull out of this text. And 
as always, you, you may find others, different ones. God's Spirit applies the truth to us. But what I saw was that first, Jesus was revealing his attitude. And I get that because it says, Jesus said. When we're real wounded, fearful, depressed, most of us don't speak much, do we? We withdraw. We close up. And yet Jesus, in this terrible physical condition, spoke so the crowd could hear. He spoke to them and he spoke through them to us. Because he wanted to know, wanted us to know what he was thinking as his life slipped away and, and the, we're looking closely at him and listening to what he's saying. But it was very difficult to speak. Crucifixion causes death by asphyxiation, suffocation. Because a crucified person is, is hanging and, and must push up to be able to breathe. So they actually die of suffocation. In fact, you remember how the Romans hastened the death of the crucified. They broke their legs so they couldn't push up to breathe. John 19. Jesus came to earth as a man. To die as a sacrifice for our sins. But also to show us as he lived how to live a God-led, spirit-filled life. And the words that he spoke and the things that he did were written down by the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For us to learn about him, but also about God. But they don't contain everything. John 21 says, if everything were written down, there wouldn't be a library big enough to contain all the books. John 21, 25. Jesus said this at John 11. You can turn there. 42, interesting. It's an interesting passage. Which just shows he was living a life on display to teach lessons for all those who would see and for those later who would read. And this is the, the occasion when he raised Lazarus from the dead. But before he said, Lazarus, come out, he said it, verse 42. Father, thank you for hearing me, it says in 41. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. And then he said, you always hear me. But I said this out loud for the sake of all these people standing here. So they will believe you sent me. Jesus' life and his death 
display for us the nature of our invisible God. Do you wonder what God is like? Anybody wonder that? Let me see some hands if you wonder what God is like. You know my story. You've heard it too much, ad nauseum probably, but I was saved mean. Grew up under a lot of condemnation, criticism. And so I really was born again, but I was mean. Judgmental, dogmatic. And I knew it was wrong. You know, and somebody that loved me said, you need, you need some more mercy. I only knew one way to get it. I had to figure out who God was. Because my God was also critical of me. Looking down, disapprovingly, expecting me to fail. So I spent a long time, months and months and months, reading the Gospels, reading the Gospels, reading the Gospels. Because Jesus said to Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. Because Philip said, show us the Father and we'll believe. He said, no, Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. So I read those Gospels to unlearn my impression of God and try to learn a more accurate view of who God was and what His nature was. So if you want to know God's nature... Read the Gospels. If you want to gain familiarity with his personality, look at Jesus. Examine Jesus' actions. Listen to his words. Because he's an exact representation of the nature and the personality of God. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness included relying on his Father. And again, just, a, just a, another word. Jesus said, Father. Despite this suffering, Jesus remained in relationship with his Father. Now, God the Father is the one who plans all things and orders all things. So, this, this excruciating death designed to, to deliver the world from sin was formulated by the Father. Excruciating, you know what excruciating means? Out of crucifying. The origin of the word is from crucifixion. Jesus knew that the Father could have spared him this injustice and this suffering. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself could have come down from the cross. We know the, the hymn that says he could have called 10,000 angels and they would have delivered him. But such deliverance wasn't part of the plan that the Father formulated and the Son agreed to enable, uh, together with the Spirit 
in eternity past. So despite the Father's intense, eternal, intimate love for the Son. See, in the Trinity, there's fellowship. There's there's agape love. There's unlimited love. That's why for us, the model of a spouse, a husband loving a wife, is Jesus loving the church. And it's modeled on the Trinity. Despite the love he felt, Christ's Father remained firm in the presence of unrestrained wickedness and allowed his son to suffer. I want you to feel that. Some of us have a hard time letting our children suffer in any way, don't we? I'm afraid that's usually because of codependence. But we are unwilling for them to suffer, even when it's for their good. Well, God the Father formulated, planned, appointed the Son who agreed to it. And the Father watched when Satan seemed to triumph, when the Son was in agony, and the Father held his hands at his side. Jesus' disciples had abandoned him. You know, they were afraid. They ran away. John would later come back. So so imagine Jesus. All this personal pain. All this accusation. All this mistreatment. His best friends have fled. But none of this shattered the son's confidence In his father's concern. Have you noticed how sometimes when we suffer. We turn on the person we think is causing the suffering. Jesus knew that even in this hour. When it seemed that evil had triumphed. That God the father would be near. Some of you are suffering today. Some of you have things that are not going well. What's your attitude toward your heavenly father? Does the pain, does the disappointment, does the agony you're experiencing, the fear that's encompassing you, has it caused you to distrust God? To withdraw, to doubt, to resist, even to resent him. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness included requesting forgiveness for sinners. Again, back to Luke 23. Put your little ribbon there. We're back and forth, Luke. And again, just very simply, just so you can tell, I'm only covering a word or two at a time. Jesus said, forgive them. When this mob arrived at Skull Hill, 
An upright beam was laid on the ground. Which actually it's very rocky there. But on the, so on the rock of the hilltop. And then the cross beam that the, the, the person condemned to crucifixion would usually carry a cross beam. Did Jesus carry his? Who carried it? A man named Simon from the town of Cyrene. Perhaps Jesus was just too exhausted, too near to death already, so they pulled the man out of the crowd and they put Jesus' crossbeam across Simon's shoulders and he carried it up the hill. And so the crossbeam would be laid across the upright and attached. And then Jesus was laid down across it, likely just thrown down, shoved down. And as his arms were were jerked out, I think he began to pray. See, the Greek here is in a tense that says Jesus kept repeating, Father, forgive them. In English, he says it once. It's not the way it actually happened. He's likely started mumbling. I think when his arms were first stretched, he probably started right then. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Weakened by the loss of blood, suffering from searing pain, barely able to breathe, much less speak. Surrounded by people who were were shouting insults and ridiculing him. He was being laid down. He was about to be nailed to this cross His lips were moving. What would your lips be articulating in a similar situation? You know, they they saw his lips moving. What's he what is this guy doing? Has he lost his mind? What's he he's he's groaning with pain? Is he mumbling words of self-pity? Is he saying, God, deliver me, help me, help me die fast? What's he what would he say? Was he cursing the people that were crucifying him? The Roman soldiers who were leaning over him, the spike and the hammer in hand. No. He uttered an expression of mercy. Wonder what manner of deliverance. He wasn't preaching, of course. I think it was sad. I think it was hopeful as he prayed for forgiveness for his enemies. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus, we know, had forgiven the sins of people. In fact, he he stated it that way For one man whose ingenious friends dug a hole in the roof and lowered a stretcher down into the front of Jesus. And Jesus forgave his sins. He said, your sons are forgiven, son. So, why is he asking the father to do something that he's clearly done himself? 
It appears, you get to think about this one, right? When I say it appears. It appears that Jesus refused his role as deity. That he abdicated his position and his power. So he could die as our sacrificial lamb. Look at Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He was God to be sure. But he chose to suspend his divine rights and his privileges. His heart was burdened for those who had committed history's greatest crime. And yet, words of forgiveness came from his lips as nails were driven into his wrists and feet. As he was lifted up and and the cross was dropped so that when it hit, it would have jerked. In our time in Israel, it, it, it was surprising for me to reach my hand down into the hole where the cross had been. And there were others places to the left and the right. This hilltop is now inside a church. But it's all limestone. It's not soil. And so you could feel how it had been carved out. And it suddenly made sense to me how thousands could have been crucified. They weren't digging a hole the way you try to put a post in your backyard and it's you know, wobbly and you have to have concrete or something. Mm-mm. It was limestone and it was engineered and the upright would just fit. But each time it was dropped, it would jar. But when his pain, when his torment, when his anguish was the worst... He prayed for the people who caused it. Three years earlier as Jesus began his ministry there on the Sermon of the Mount. He had said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he did. Don't raise your hand on this, but anybody have an enemy? Someone you dislike perhaps someone who has treated you poorly and persists in treating you poorly can you pray for their forgiveness can you ask God to bless them I think it's almost the only way to pull out that poison of animosity and resentment is to ask forgiveness To forgive yourself and to ask in opposite manner that God bless this person. And if you really want this poison extracted from your life, pray that God blesses that person in greater measure than you. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness also included the reason for forgiveness. And he said this. This is puzzling to me. They don't know what they're doing. 
Did they know what they were doing? They know what they were doing, Joe. On one level, they certainly did. Were these people ignorant of their wrongdoing? Well, of course not. Judas knew he betrayed a friend. He showed it when he hung himself afterward. The Sanhedrin knew they had found some corrupt men who they bribed to lie to bring false charges about Jesus. Pilate knew he had condemned an innocent man and he tried to release him even. And he, he, even, he, he said, here, I'll give you Barabbas. They said, we don't want Barabbas. And Pilate washed his hands. I'm, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And this crowd that cried for his death had no evidence that Jesus was evil. They just were worked up into a frenzy. A, a mob's a dangerous thing. And the thirst for violence and blood is so quick to arise. The, the crowd who demanded to Pilate that he crucify Jesus even said this. Let his blood be on us and our children. How horribly frightening that statement is. Matthew 27, 25. Meaning you just let the guilt for killing this man be on us. You go ahead and kill him. And you know what? Let this guilt flow over us and onto our children. Unimaginable, isn't it? Unimaginable. But notice the attitudes of the people who stood, who stood around and who were close by. Verse 33. And the criminals were crucified. Father, forgive them. Now, 30, I've got the wrong verse. Um, and the soldiers, begin at the latter half of 34. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Literally casting lots. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. What do you see from these people? At the very least, you see indifference. Some who came for a spectacle. Whereas others expressed sarcasm and mockery and ridicule. And they took steps to humiliate this man who might presume that he's the son of God. None of these people were ignorant of the facts of their guilt. All were unaware of the enormity of their offense. They didn't know they really were killing the Messiah they'd been awaiting for hundreds of years. Peter said this in Acts 3. Same thing. Verse 17. 
Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. Same thing at 1 Corinthians 2.8. But you know what? Sins committed in ignorance are still sins. We know that when the police officer pulls us over. Doesn't matter whether you knew you were speeding, though you know most of the time you did know. The guilt of those who crucified Jesus was real. Regardless of whether they understood what they'd done or not. You know, when there's a principle in law that says ignorance of the law is no excuse. And I'm sure that the, in the legal field that came originally from the scripture. Ignorance of God's law is no excuse. But God in his sovereign mercy applied the blood that these people caused to flow to their hearts. Their cruelty cleansed them. What a strange God we serve. Does this mean every one of these people were forgiven without even asking? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think not. I think Jesus' prayer was not for those who didn't want to be forgiven, weren't going to ask. But it was for all who would seek him later. Jesus in John 17 said, I pray for all those who will become one. He already knew. You know when your name was written in the Lamb's book of life? You know that term, the Lamb's book of life? You know when it was written? It wasn't written when you prayed. The right names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus looked at these people, some of them were lost and saved at the same time. There was a Roman centurion who was likely the the one who was the commander of crucifixion. That was his assignment. He became deeply distressed at the moment that Jesus died and and darkness fell. There were earthquakes, rocks split apart, and tombs even opened up. And he said this. This is in Matthew, so if you can get there fast, otherwise it will be on the screen. Matthew 27. 54. Now, this is the man who has just told the soldiers, You're the one, you drive the stake in his feet. You, you drive the, 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 the stakes in his wrists. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened. And they said, this man truly was the son of God. I expect he's in heaven awaiting us. The centurion and 
apparently some of the soldiers. And then, then later, Peter preached after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts 2, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Peter preached and 3,000 were saved. And then a little, a little while later, he healed a crippled beggar. He was on the, at the temple grounds and he preached again and another 2,000 were saved. And it says, the scripture says, and the gospel spread and many more in Jerusalem, including many who rejected Jesus and even called for his crucifixion. Accepted the truth. Including many Jewish priests. Acts 6, 7 is where that's found. You can look at Hebrews 2, 3. The very people that said, no, kill him, Pilate. Judge me, judge my children, put him to death. And later, they knew by revelation of the Spirit of God. Jesus' death and his prayers were for his murderers, but they extended all the way to us. Because you know what? We aren't much different from those people. You know, some people say, I wish I could have walked with Jesus. I don't. I don't wish I could have walked with Jesus. I can be a little aggressive. I'd have probably been one of those Roman guards who said, give me that spike. Give me that spike. Some of you would have stood there and said, ah, let the blood be on us. Kill this man. Aren't you glad you weren't standing there? And now you've seen the resurrection. You've seen the gospel move. You you have the scripture to read. You've seen the church build across the globe. You don't have the chance to be there and say, give me the spike. But perhaps we do. When we deny him. When we doubt him, when we lie, when we cheat, when we look away from the holiness of God, because I got some things I want to do. Are we striking the spike? Romans 5 8. So 907. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. What's the the end of that verse say? When we stood on that hillside and drove the spikes in his wrists. He didn't save you because you were good. He saved you because you needed salvation. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Do you know your need of God's forgiveness? Will you ask for it? There'll be some counselors at the front. There's no better time to come and ask that you be a recipient of that forgiveness than right now. I'll pray. Counselors will move to the front. You want to come and pray with someone? You want to say, I'd like to start meeting with someone and understand this Jesus of Nazareth. Father God, impress on us the experience of your son so that it stops being a story far away, but it becomes a reality up close that touches our life, that influences our thinking, that controls even our actions and our words. But God, when when your son said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. God, we don't know what we're doing in our lostness and our pride and our resistance. But God, save us anyway. Not because we're worthy, but because we're not. So you'll be glorified. Amen. Thank you for coming. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. And then he said, you always hear me. But I said this out loud for the sake of all these people standing here. So they will believe you sent me. Jesus' life and his death display for us the nature of our invisible God. Do you wonder what God is like? Anybody wonder that? Let me see some hands if you wonder what God is like. You know my story. You've heard it too much ad nauseum probably. But I was saved mean. Grew up under a lot of condemnation, criticism. And so I really was born again, but I was mean. Judgmental, dogmatic. And I knew it was wrong. You know, and somebody that loved me said, you need, you need some more mercy. I only knew one way to get it. I had to figure out who God was. Because my God was also critical of me, looking down disapprovingly, expecting me to fail. So I spent a long time, months and months and months, reading the Gospels, reading the Gospels, reading the Gospels. Because Jesus said to Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. Because Philip said, show us the Father and we'll believe. He said, no, Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. So I read those Gospels to unlearn my impression of God and try to learn a more accurate view of who God was and what His nature was. So if you want to know God's nature... Read the Gospels. If you want to gain familiarity with his personality, look at Jesus. 
Examine Jesus' actions. Listen to his words. Because he's an exact representation of the nature and the personality of God. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness included relying on his Father. And again, just, a, just a, another word. Jesus said, Father. Despite this suffering, Jesus remained in relationship with his Father. Now, God the Father is the one who plans all things and orders all things. So, this, this excruciating death designed to, to deliver the world from sin was formulated by the Father. Excruciating, you know what excruciating means? Out of crucifying. The origin of the word is from crucifixion. Jesus knew that the Father could have spared him this injustice and this suffering. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself could have come down from the cross. We know the the hymn that says he could have called 10,000 angels and they would have delivered him. But such deliverance wasn't part of the plan that the Father formulated and the Son agreed to together with the Spirit. In eternity past. So despite. The father's intense. Eternal. Intimate love for the son. See in the trinity. There's fellowship. There's there's agape love. There's unlimited love. That's why for us. The model of a spouse. A husband loving a wife. Is Jesus loving The church. And it's modeled on the Trinity. Despite the love he felt. Christ's father remained firm in the presence of unrestrained wickedness. And allowed his son to suffer. I want you to feel that. Some of us have a hard time letting our children suffer in any way, don't we? I'm afraid that's usually because of codependence. But we are unwilling for them to suffer, even when it's for their good. Well, God the Father formulated, planned, appointed the Son who agreed to it. And the Father watched when Satan seemed to triumph, when the Son was in agony, and the Father held his hands at his side. Jesus' disciples had abandoned him. You know, they were afraid. They ran away. John would later come back. So so imagine Jesus. All this personal pain. All this accusation. All this mistreatment. His best friends have fled. But none of this shattered the son's confidence In his father's concern. 
Have you noticed how sometimes when we suffer, we turn on the person we think is causing the suffering? Jesus knew that even in this hour when it seemed that evil had triumphed, that God the Father would be near. Some of you are suffering today. Some of you have things that are not going well. What's your attitude toward your heavenly father? Does the pain, does the disappointment, does the agony you're experiencing, the fear that's encompassing you, has it caused you to distrust God? To withdraw, to doubt, to resist, even to resent Him. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness included requesting forgiveness for sinners. Again, back to Luke 23. Put your little ribbon there. We're back and forth, Luke. And again, just very simply, just so you can tell I'm only covering a word or two at a time. Jesus said, forgive them. When this mob arrived at Skull Hill, an upright beam was laid on the ground. Actually, it's very rocky there, but on the, so on the rock of the hilltop. And then the cross beam that the, the, the person condemned to crucifixion would usually carry a cross beam. Did Jesus carry his? Who carried it? A man named Simon from the town of Cyrene. Perhaps Jesus was just too exhausted, too near to death already. So they pulled the man out of the crowd and they put Jesus' crossbeam across Simon's shoulders. And he carried it up the hill. And so the crossbeam would be laid across the upright and attached and then Jesus was laid down across it, likely just thrown down, shoved down. And as his arms were, were jerked out, I think he began to pray. See, the Greek here is in a tense that says Jesus kept repeating, Father, forgive them. In English, he says it once. It's not the way it actually happened. He's likely started mumbling. I think when his arms were first stretched, he probably started right then. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Weakened by the loss of blood, suffering from searing pain, barely able to breathe, much less speak. Surrounded by people who were were shouting insults and ridiculing him. He was being laid down. He was about to be nailed to this cross. His lips were moving. 
What would your lips be articulating in a similar situation? You know, they, they saw his lips moving. What's he, what is this guy doing? Has he lost his mind? What's he, he's, he's groaning with pain. Is he mumbling words of self-pity? Is he saying, God, deliver me, help me, help me die fast? What's he, what would he say? Was he cursing the people that were crucifying him? The Roman soldiers who were leaning over him, the spike and the hammer in hand. No. He uttered an expression of mercy. Wonder what manner of deliverance. He wasn't preaching, of course. I think it was sad. I think it was hopeful as he prayed for forgiveness for his enemies. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus, we know, had forgiven the sins of people. In fact, he he stated it that way for one man whose ingenious friends dug a hole in the roof and lowered a stretcher down into the front of Jesus. And Jesus forgave his sins. He said, your sons are forgiven, son. So why is he asking the father to do something that he's clearly done himself? It appears, you get to think about this one, right? When I say it appears. It appears that Jesus refused his role as deity. That he abdicated his position and his power. So he could die as our sacrificial lamb. Look at Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He was God to be sure. But he chose to suspend his divine rights and his privileges. His heart was burdened for those who had committed history's greatest crime. And yet words of forgiveness came from his lips as nails were driven into his Wrists and feet. As he was lifted up and and the cross was dropped. So that when it hit, it would have jerked. In our time in Israel, it, it, it was surprising for me to reach my hand down into the hole where the cross had been. And there were others places to the left and the right. This hilltop is now inside a church. But it's all limestone. It's not soil. And so you could feel how it had been carved out. And it suddenly made sense to me how thousands could have been crucified. They weren't digging a hole the way you try to put a post in your backyard and it's you know, wobbly and have to have concrete or something. Hmm. It was limestone. 
and it was engineered and the upright would just fit. But each time it was dropped, it would jar. But when his pain, when his torment, when his anguish was the worst, he prayed for the people who caused it. Three years earlier, as Jesus began his ministry there on the Sermon of the Mount, he had said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And he did. Don't raise your hand on this, but anybody have an enemy? Someone you dislike? Perhaps someone who is treated you poorly and persists in treating you poorly? Can you pray for their forgiveness? Can you ask God to bless them? I think it's almost the only way to pull out that poison of animosity and resentment is to ask forgiveness, to forgive yourself and to ask in opposite manner, that God bless this person. And if you really want this poison extracted from your life, pray that God blesses that person in greater measure than you. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness also included the reason for forgiveness. And he said this. This is puzzling to me. They don't know what they're doing. Did they know what they were doing? They know what they were doing, Joe? On one level, they certainly did. Were these people ignorant of their wrongdoing? Well, of course not. Judas knew he betrayed a friend. He showed it when he hung himself afterward. The Sanhedrin knew they had found some corrupt men who they bribed to lie to bring false charges about Jesus. Pilate knew he had condemned an innocent man and he tried to release him even. And he, he, even, he, he said, here, I'll give you Barabbas. They said, we don't want Barabbas. And Pilate washed his hands. I'm, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And this crowd that cried for his death had no evidence that Jesus was evil. They just were worked up into a frenzy. A, a mob's a dangerous thing. And the thirst for violence and blood is so quick to arise. The, the crowd who demanded to Pilate that he crucify Jesus even said this. Let his blood be on us and our children. How horribly frightening that statement is. Matthew 27, 25. Meaning you just let the guilt for killing this man be on us. You go ahead and kill him. And you know what? Let this guilt flow over us and onto our children. Unimaginable, isn't it? Unimaginable. But notice the attitudes of the people who stood, who stood around and who were close by. Verse 33. 
And the criminals were crucified. Father, forgive them. Now, 30, I've got the wrong verse. Um, And the soldiers begin at the latter half of 34. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice, literally casting lots. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. What do you see from these people? At the very least you see indifference. Some who came for a spectacle. Whereas others expressed sarcasm and mockery and ridicule. And they took steps to humiliate this man who might presume that he's the son of God. None of these people were ignorant of the facts of their guilt. All were unaware of the enormity of their offense. They didn't know they really were killing the Messiah they'd been awaiting for hundreds of years. Peter said this in Acts 3. Same thing. Verse 17. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. Same thing at 1 Corinthians 2.8. But you know what? Sins committed in ignorance are still sins. We know that when the police officer pulls us over. Doesn't matter whether you knew you were speeding. Though you know most of the time you did know. The guilt of those who crucified Jesus was real. Regardless of whether they understood what they'd done or not. You know, when there's a principle in law... It says, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And I'm sure that in the legal field, that came originally from the Scripture. Ignorance of God's law is no excuse. But God, in His sovereign mercy, applied the blood that these people caused to flow to their hearts. Their cruelty cleansed them. What a strange God we serve. Does this mean every one of these people were forgiven without even asking? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think not. I think Jesus' prayer was not for those who didn't want to be forgiven, weren't going to ask. 
But it was for all who would seek him later. Jesus in John 17 said, I pray for all those who will become one. He already knew. You know when your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You know that term, the Lamb's Book of Life? You know when it was written? It wasn't written when you prayed. The right names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus looked at, at these people, some of them were lost and saved at the same time. There was a Roman centurion who was likely the, the one who was the commander of crucifixion. That was his assignment. He became deeply distressed at the moment that Jesus died and and darkness fell. There were earthquakes, rocks split apart, and tombs even opened up. And he said this. This is in Matthew, so if you can get there fast, otherwise it will be on the screen. Matthew 27, 54. Now this is the man who has just told the soldiers, you're the one, you drive the stake in his feet. You you drive the, 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 the stakes in his wrists. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened. And they said, this man truly was the son of God. I expect he's in heaven awaiting us. The centurion and apparently some of the soldiers. And then then later, Peter preached... After the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts 2, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, Peter preached and 3,000 were saved. And then a little, a little while later, he healed a crippled beggar. He was on the, at the temple grounds and he preached again and another 2,000 were saved. And it says, the scripture says, and the gospel spread and many more in Jerusalem, including many who rejected Jesus and even called for his crucifixion. Accepted the truth. Including many Jewish priests. Acts 6, 7 is where that's found. You can look at Hebrews 2, 3. The very people that said, no, kill him, Pilate. Judge me, judge my children, put him to death. And later, they knew by revelation of the Spirit of God. Jesus' death and his prayers were for his murderers, but they extended all the way to us. Because you know what? We aren't much different from those people. You know, some people say, I wish I could have walked with Jesus. I don't. I don't wish I could have walked with Jesus. I can be a little aggressive. I'd have probably been one of those Roman guards who said, give me that spike. Give me that spike. Some of you would have stood there and said, ah, let the blood be on us. Kill this man.
Aren't you glad you weren't standing there? And now you've seen the resurrection. You've seen the gospel move. You, you, you have the scripture to read. You've seen the church build across the globe. You don't have the chance to be there and say, give me the spike. But perhaps we do. When we deny him, when we doubt him, when we lie, when we cheat, when we look away from the holiness of God, because I got some things I want to do. Are we striking the spike? Romans 5 8. It's on 907. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. What's the the end of that verse say? When we stood on that hillside and drove the spikes in his wrists. He didn't save you because you were good. He saved you because you needed salvation. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Do you know your need of God's forgiveness? Will you ask for it? There'll be some counselors at the front. There's no better time to come and ask that you be a recipient of that forgiveness than right now. I'll pray. Counselors will move to the front. You want to come and pray with someone? You want to say, I'd like to start meeting with someone and understand This Jesus of Nazareth. Father God. Impress on us. The experience of your son. So that it stops being a story far away. But it becomes a reality up close. That touches our life. That influences our thinking. That controls even our actions and our words. But God when when your son said father forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God we don't know what we're doing in our lostness. And our pride and our resistance. But God. Save us anyway. Not because we're worthy. But because we're not. So you'll be glorified. Amen. Thank you for coming.